Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, May 27th, and we're talking tech, trying to explain just how an iPhone winds up in a customer's hand. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com Senior Technology Specialist and knower of all things Apple, Evan New. Evan, how's it going? Pretty good. Good Friday. Yeah, yeah. Right before a nice little three-day weekend. We will not be doing a show on Monday, listeners, just so you know. So enjoy your Memorial Day barbecues. Uh, Unfortunately, you're going to have to have a Spotify playlist going or something like that. You won't be able to have a new episode of IF to uh, enjoy the brats and beer and whatnot. Um, so we're wrapping up product lifecycle week here on Industry Focus, and we're going to do a little discussion of everyone's favorite consumer electronics device, or at least my personal favorite consumer electronics device. I know you're also a big fan, Evan. Uh, the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> and just namely uh, how it gets into cons- consumers' hands. Um, a lot of people uh, you know, in the earlier episodes this week have kind of followed a chronological approach of mm. the background uh, from start to finish. We're going to kind of do the reverse. We're going to talk about uh, the intermediary that assembles everything and then get into some of the individual suppliers that uh, provide those products and the components to uh, the assemblies. So, um, Evan, I've seen that estimates that roughly 90% of the iPhone comes from outside the U.S. You think that's about right? Yeah, it sounds about right. I know it's, it's a lot. I mean, very little of it comes from inside the U.S. these days. I mean, they have other products that are made here, like the Mac Pro, but as far as the iPhone goes, it's, it's mostly abroad, yeah. And I don't know how much that really is different than uh, the component breakdown in the past, uh, you know, maybe in like the early 90s, mid 90s for, uh, you know, standard consumer tech stuff. But one of the major changes that Apple underwent um, really with Tim Cook was this idea of changing from having uh, their own in-house manufacturing, their own in-house warehouses, uh, company owned, to moving to this contract manufacturing type relationship. Yeah, they did that, I think, in the late 90s or so. I mean, they used to make Macs in the U.S. and California, and, you know, they just realized that it was just way too expensive, and it was just, you, a lot of it's also the kind of kind of um, engineering talent and manufacturing talent you can get now. Because, you know, the, of course, a lot of people criticize that they won't bring those jobs back to the U.S., but Apple's defense nowadays, isn't, it's not just about low-cost labor, it's also about, like, you don't have as many mid-level manufacturing engineers available in the U.S. anymore just because, as an economy, we don't have as many of those types of jobs. Like That's not the type of education that we focus on anymore, and there's like a ton of that over there. So including the lower-cost labor, they have more people that are within the specific skill sets that they need to like ramp these manufacturing. I mean, you, like I think they, a long time ago they said that like you could fit you know, every single engineer, manufacturing engineer within that they would need in like – baseball stadium but they like in the country like you feel all you know that's just how many there are now but over in china and foxconn's you know they can get hundreds of thousands of engineers within a couple of hours if they need them to like make some change or you know do you know tweak some process or so you know there's there's a lot of sides to the story why they do it like that and this pivot, uh, this decision by the business to go to this contract manufacturing uh, relationship, it was really something that Tim Cook pushed aggressively. You know, for all the praise that Steve Jobs gets as this design, branding, user experience mastermind, uh, this is where Tim Cook's expertise really is in operational efficiency and uh, just running a business extremely well from a supply chain uh, point of view. And so he has really pushed the business to where they are now, where they rely heavily on Foxconn and Pegatron, to name two, as these contract manufacturers. And listeners, uh, just so you have an idea, if you don't know what this term means, 
uh, basically, Apple doesn't own any of the facilities where iPhones are being assembled. Instead, well, they own. A, let me just add in that they own a bunch of the, the manufacturing tooling and the the equipment. So, like, what a lot of their capital expenditures these days are, they they buy the actual infrastructure and the gear, and then they put that inside of the facilities that are that they don't own. So it's, they kind of own a lot of the stuff, and then Foxconn owns the factory, and then they hire the people, and then they operate that stuff. So, I mean, their capex is like ten million a year now, which is insane. And majority of that goes to like this this product tooling that sits in Asia inside of factory facilities. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you uh, hopped in and clarified there. Uh, so, but largely they're paying these manufacturers uh, to put together their devices and then ship them over, right? Right, right. And so, uh, Foxconn is the name that you will hear the most. And um, when you hear that name, you often think of Foxconn City, which is the company's largest manufacturing plant, and that's in Shenzhen, China. And so, chances are, if you're holding an iPhone, if you're listening to this episode on an iPhone, uh, it was put together in China. Um, that on that one campus alone, and I say campus, I mean that that's kind of the vibe that you get looking around. If you ever see pictures of this setup, it's incredible. But they have hundreds of thousands of employees working there. Um, mm. You know, it's it's over a square mile. I mean, they have dorms for employees, its own shopping center. I think they have their own cable network there. Um, and, and so the executives there liken it to this college experience. I think it's kind of a stretch. But uh, you know, you have people working like twelve-hour days, six days a week, putting together iPhones. Um, but that one Foxconn city location is just one of the 12 that the company has in China. Um, and actually, folks in uh, folks following tech might have heard earlier this week, Foxconn announced it automated uh, 60,000 jobs in one of its factories. So uh, kind of going back to that idea of um, providing some of the tooling, I'm sure Apple had something to do with that. Yeah, I wonder if they helped fund some of that if they're... If you know if they're going to be using those robots for primarily for iPhone production, it would make sense if Apple helped them pay for some of that. Yeah, we don't we don't have firm details on that, but um, it wouldn't be a stretch by any means. Right, right, right. Um, <clears throat> more recently, Apple uh, added Pegatron. That's a name I mentioned earlier as another contract manufacturer, and I think this was maybe like 2012 or so, 2013. And I think there were two big reasons for this. One of them was kind of a diversification to downplay the risk of relying solely on one contract manufacturer so heavily like Foxconn. And I think maybe another one was um, in a response to the company's kind of increasingly complex, fragmented product offering. You know, they wanted to have that split among a couple different suppliers just because um, of some of the specialization required to produce the different sizes and models and form factors. Um so, yeah, if you're listening to the show on an iPhone, chances are it started out in a Foxconn or Pegatron factory, most likely in China. Um, and just, I think, a testament to the growth and diversification strategy among their contract manufacturers, uh, recently they've added another Taiwan-based company to this list, uh, Winstrom. So, uh, just another thing to kind of keep an eye out for. So, uh, Evan, any thoughts on why they do this beyond just the very conventional um Cost, you know, it, it's cheaper to outsource uh, production to some of these uh, companies or some of these countries where labor is a little bit cheaper. I mean, I think part of it is, is that in, in addition to the engineering talent thing that I was talking about earlier, but then, you know, in, Tim Cook like absolutely hates inventory <laughs> and, you know, setting up this model and like the supply chain. Like, I've read, you know, reports where like other industry executives like look at Apple supply chain and they're just like blown away. They're like, whoa we can't compete with this <laughs> like that, you know, cause you can order a custom build Apple device, like a Mac or an iPhone or something. And you can, you know, you'll get the, sh- the tracking information and it literally tr- ships from the factory to your doorstep in a matter of days. They build it and they ship it directly to you. And 
you know, in that kind of scenario where when you're when the purchase transaction goes like that, I mean, Apple does very little hands on. You know, it, it, Apple's not physically handling the product too much if you're you know ordering like that, and, and that's kind of a testament because they still get to book all the revenue and all the sales and. I mean, it, it goes from a contract manufacturer to a third-party shipping company to directly to the customer. And with that happening also quickly, it just – their inventory turnover times are so insanely high that it's comparable to like fast food restaurants and stuff like that instead of like $600 smartphones. And I, I think that's that's been a huge boon to Apple because that just makes the whole operation a lot more efficient. And it's this huge strength because, again, like other companies have seen this and they're like, we can't do that. We can't set it up this seamlessly and streamline to this point where it's just incredibly efficient and direct, you know, I mean, of course they have to have a lot of inventory for like the retail stores and things like that, but you know, they're, they're, they're very good inventory management. They, they keep it really, they keep it really lean because otherwise, you know, having a lot of inventory is never really a good thing because it just sits there and it risks getting written down. If you can't sell it and if you have too much and you know, it's just, it's just kind of a big pain. And I think that's why Tim Cook has really pursued this path so aggressively, at least one reason. And to your point, I, while I was researching the show, uh, I came across this stat that the flip to contract manufacturing took the amount of time that inventory sat on Apple's balance sheet for months to days. So you talk about that inventory turnover, and actually this is something that Vincent Shen alluded to when he did the consumer goods episode of Industry Focus, talking about inventory turnover, that Apple's got the best in the business, and it's because inventory sits on their balance sheet for such a short amount of time. Mm, yep. Um, so I think beyond that, there's also a little bit more manufacturing flexibility uh, abroad, you know, I think some of these uh, contract manufacturers are ready to go, and they, you know, can get things set up very quickly. They have the talent in place to, you know, within two weeks, really be up and running. Um, That's another thing, because like, you know, if you have if you have these really big demands, and you need to be able to scale up and down depending on seasonality and, and these other factors. That's why that's another big benefit of this contract manufacturing model is because you can just say, hey, I need X number of units, go build them. Whereas if you're doing the manufacturing yourself, you have to also have to worry about things like excess capacity, capacity utilization. If you're like, you know, let's say you need to ramp down for whatever reason, and, which makes a lot of sense now with you know, the iPhone just finally declining for the first time. And, you know, but just in general, just having that ability to kind of this lever of like, I can increase production at needed. Without really worrying too much about the, the logistics of, of personnel, like you know, hiring, laying off, and you know, which is you know, companies that have a lot of manufacturing footprint have to constantly worry about how they're going to like manage the you know increasing and decreasing you know production, particularly you know when it comes to hiring and laying off workers, you know, which is a tough thing to do, and you know, so they're kind of outsourcing that responsibility in a way too. Yeah, of course, this approach is not without its own risks, right? Um, you know, for as much as we praise Apple, Apple's operational uh, smarts here, there are some issues with the model. Um, you know, one of them, I think, namely, is control, right? And so we haven't seen a ton of this, but there is the possibility of quality control being a problem. But I think more when you think about uh, Foxconn and some of the contract manufacturers in Asia, there's always this worry about working conditions, and this is something that has gotten a lot of press in the last couple of years. Um, you know, there's always this concern of working conditions being substandard, of being overly demanding, of overtime being required, things like that. And so, uh, that that's definitely one of the risks here. Yeah, definitely agree there. And I, then one of the other ones that immediately comes to mind for me is just intellectual property risk too. Um, you know, uh, I think you can't go more than uh, maybe a couple weeks without seeing online, uh, you know, leaked photos of you know some rumored iPhone design or configuration. 
And I think that's a byproduct of these contract manufacturing systems. You know, when you have all these intermediaries within um, the design and fulfillment, uh, it's it just bound to happen somewhere. Yeah, I mean, with as global as Apple's business has become in the supply chain, it's just it's too massive. Like you can't keep it secret. <laughs> like there's just too many moving parts. There's too many third parties involved, and everyone wants a piece of it and wants to know. And I mean, like you can easily sell a picture of a leaked iPhone and get paid a ton of money if you can smuggle it out i mean you'll risk losing your job but i mean for some of these workers like there, there's a lot of upside to actually sneaking these things out because they know how much appetite the media has for it yeah and i wonder how much the company really minds that that happens you know uh for them well, it's- i know that they, they they've punished workers that have been caught doing this like and, and it's pretty severe punishment I, I don't remember exactly what it was but i mean like they, they i mean because you know, obviously apple is such a huge contract for them and if that, you know, and they have all these confidentiality agreements and all these things like that. So I, I do think that Foxconn does care. They do try to do their best to stop it. But again, when you're talking at this scale, I mean, all it takes is one person to get a picture or a prototype or a molding or something out and you have a headline. Yeah. So uh, the life of an iPhone, while it is in some ways it begins at Foxconn or a Pegatron factory, um, I think it really begins even earlier than that. Uh, you know, before they're assembled there, there are all of these components that are made by individual suppliers or provided by individual suppliers. And so, you know, uh, I think some people have done very well investing in iPhone component manufacturers. I think it kind of makes sense to discuss a couple of them here that you're particularly interested in um, that you think are, you know, worth talking about. So, uh, and one of the first ones that comes to mind for me is Corning. Um, and they are the manufacturers of Gorilla Glass, uh, which is the glass that is on the front of the iPhone. It's the one that your finger touches all the time uh, and the one that Steve Jobs famously insisted on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the story was like he had the original prototype which had like a plastic screen in his pocket and it kept getting scratched up and then like six months or six weeks or some, it was some ridiculous timeline before the unveiling. He was like, hey, we need to go make this happen. <laughs> which is, again, kind of ties back into the whole like engineering talent thing they were talking about earlier because like they needed to make this change within such a short period of time that you need to have an army of mid-level manufacturing engineers that can put this together and, and you know, from a manufacturing perspective to actually make this happen. And it probably wouldn't have been possible in the U.S. with the kind of talent that we have here. But, yeah, I mean, then, and of course, now Gorilla Glass is like the standard feature in all high-end smartphones. So Apple really kind of like brought this thing back from the dead because this technology had been like 60 years old and Corning had no idea what to do with it because there was no market for it. And then all of a sudden Apple's like, hey, and then they created a market for, them, for this <laughs> this product, and now I think they're on Gorilla Glass four, I think, or something. You know, of course they improve the the, the glass every few you know, generations or so. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's so common nowadays. Yeah, I think uh, if I remember the story correctly, Steve Jobs said, you know, people are going to have this in their pocket with keys, and the keys are going to scratch plastic. We need to have something else, and so uh, enter Corning, right? And uh, I'm sure they're very happy to be an Apple provider, although there was a period where it looked like they weren't going to be an Apple provider, right? Um, it seemed like Apple was going to be pivoting over to uh, GTAT at one point. Yeah, there, so there was a lot of talk about the whole Sapphire thing, which has its merits but also has its downsides. I mean, there are pros and cons to switching to it. I mean, it's more scratch-resistant, but it's also more brittle, so it actually shatters easier <laughs> than, than Gorilla Glass. Um, and that and that was one of the problems in manufacturing it, right? And one of the reasons that uh, GTAT did not pan out as an Apple supplier. 
Right. And also one thing I'll mention about Corning is that when it comes to being an Apple supplier, because because being an Apple supplier is such like a legitimate investing strategy nowadays. But I think um, Corning, it's like their specialty materials division that includes Gorilla Glass, which is only like 10 or 15% of sales. So Corning's not really a good candidate if you're if you're going in saying, hey, I want to buy an Apple supplier that has a lot of exposure to Apple because they don't have like a ton of exposure. I mean, the rest of their business is like making other glass products like beakers or, you know, science things and like, you know, all, all these other things that, that, you know, have use for glass. So, you know, their exposure to Apple is actually pretty, pretty modest in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, they are not your conventional tech supplier. I mean, they've been around right. for over 100 years at this point. Um and have a lot of operations in the U.S. I know they used to produce uh, the glass in the U.S. and have since moved a lot of those operations over to Asia. I think part of the idea there is to just be closer to the contract manufacturing that's happening. Right, right, especially for Gorilla Glass. I mean, it's just so popular in consumer tech these days. Yeah. So uh, we touched on it a little bit, but can, can you give some background on the cautionary tale of GTAT and some of the struggles of being an Apple supplier? Yeah, so GTAT is a good, probably the best example of why being an Apple supplier is really this double-edged sword. Because, I mean, GT announced this giant deal with Apple. I, I forget all the specific numbers since it's been a couple of years, but I mean, basically they announced this huge deal with Apple to, where they would sell Apple the Sapphire material. Whereas GT had historically always been, they always made the furnace for the Sapphire. They didn't actually make the Sapphire itself. So what they did is they would make the furnace and they would sell it to other companies, companies that actually operate the furnaces and make the sapphire sell the material. So GT had never actually had experience making the material in, in a large volume. They've only made the, the equipment to make the material. And this deal with Apple was basically asking them to switch their entire business model to create and sell a ton of the actual material. So Apple would you know, basically be buying a ton of sapphire at below market rates, but it was such a massive deal that GT kind of like, I think they got kind of caught up in the storyline and they knew that it's sexy to be an Apple supplier. So they kind of signed on board, but even without having much experience with in this kind of model that of operation that Apple's asking for, because Apple originally said we were going to buy the furnaces, but then they kind of swapped in there like, Oh no, we, we just want the material. And they, and they set this whole like agreement up where they're going to build this plant. And I think Mesa, Arizona, and they're going to like operate it. And, but like Apple inserted themselves in this process at so many points. So like, you know, you had like, and plus they, the deal was so asymmetrical, like corny or not corny. GT basically took on all the risk associated with this. Apple took on very little risk. They did provide and, some financing though. I believe it was like $500 million. Right, right. To, so they, to build they basically facility. offered to have these prepayments, right? So they, so they had these four installments of like prepayments of the total. I forget. I think it was like 800 million or something like that. And, and basically at each, there's these different milestones that GT has to hit to get these prepayments. And the prepayments are used because, you know, someone needs to help fund the capex of building this facility and making all these furnaces. But GT was going to still be the owner of, of the furnaces. So, and, you know, it's a ton of money. They don't, they don't really have the time to just, like, go and do this. So Apple's, like, prepaying them, and they're, like, getting all these milestones and what those prepayments do is Apple's like a- Apple gets to prepay, and that's basically a credit that they use that they were planning to use as payment for Sapphire later on. So it's like we'll prepay you now, then they can use the money to build this thing up, and then once they start outputting Sapphire, then they just start delivering you know some Sapphire to Apple, to, and it kind of like 
it's like a, it's like a big tab. So then they owe all the sapphire, and it just became such a mess because Apple executives were overseeing GT engineers and like trying to tell them what to do, but Apple Apple has no idea how to do this stuff either. So it's like why is and like I remember reading through some of the bankruptcy filings and it's just like app like GT's like hey we need spare backup power generators because if the power goes out we can lose hundreds of thousand dollars worth of these um, bulls in a batch and you know and apple's like no we don't want to do that and it's like what and then the power went out like two or three times like <laughs> so you just have this this whole mess of like you know they're basically like betting the entire company on this deal like it's really not a far stretch to say that uh pr- particularly in light of like the fact that they they felt trapped by apple they felt that they were like completely trapped in this deal and the only way to get themselves out was to you know declare bankruptcy which they did and i mean of course like if you look at the timing of some of the gt executives you know they were cashing out some of their stock when the stock was high when you know right after the deal was announced it's like oh everyone's excited apple do that you know apple's a buyer deal so stock goes up and, and you see gt insiders starting to cash out and then, you know, six, 12 months later, they declare bankruptcy. It's just, it, you know, it's a little shady. Good. And yeah. I, I think, you know, y- y- they definitely got, they, they bit off way too much, you know, way more than they could chew. And, you know, GT shareholders got burned pretty bad. You know, I mean, they literally got bankrupt. <laughs> if you're looking for a visual representation of how things went for GT, I would just search for the bulls themselves online in Google Images because. Uh, they have these, you know, hundred-pound bools of sapphire that are cracked and unusable for manufacturing purposes because it was something that was out of their competency. You know, it wasn't in their right. warehouse like manufacturing these. <laughs> and now you have Apple saying, "Hey, we want a ton of it." And yeah, it was just such a huge change. It's like, why would you think that you could do this? And I mean, of course, at the time, that's what was leading all the speculation that they're going to use sapphires to cover glass for the iPhone, despite you know it being more brittle and all these, you know, some trade-offs. I mean, they still use, they still use Sapphire on the touch ID home button and as a camera cover glass thing, but those are two pretty small pieces compared to like the front panel. Yeah. The, the risk of that cracking is uh, much lower. Uh, right. so- it's like, I mean, people drop their phones all the time and that's, and, and Sapphire is more expensive too. So, you know, there's that too. So that's another downside. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a trade-off. It's like, what's more important, scratch resistance or cracking resistance? You know what I mean? No one likes scratching their phones, but no one likes, you know, if you drop your phone, you don't want it to crack like instantly at the same time. So it's, it's kind of a debate of, you know, debatable which one is more important, you know, because Gorilla Glass is better at one and Sapphire is better at the other. So I think the lesson for investors with GTAT is if you're looking to play uh, companies that are acting as Apple suppliers, see how reliant they are on Apple as a business and see that they are operating within a competency that they're they're used to being in, right? Right. <laughs> uh, it was such a bad deal. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, two other companies that you wanted to talk about, uh, Qualcomm and Arm Holdings. Um, so Qualcomm, a provider of modem chips, and you know it's the component that connects the iPhone to cell networks, provides that connectivity, that access to the internet. Uh, what do you have to say about them? So Qualcomm, they, they, they have a few things in there. You know, like they have some RF modules, but I think yeah, the cellular baseband is by far the most important. And Qualcomm has had this really this this like spot locked down on the iPhone for I want to say five or six years. I can't remember exactly when they switched. I think they switched in twenty ten or twenty eleven. Right after Intel bought Infineon is when they switched to Qualcomm exclusively. And it's such an important piece because 
obviously you need the cell modem to connect your phone to the cell, to the cell network. And I think for Apple specifically, one reason why Qualcomm was really able to lock this down is because they have the absolute best technology and they ha- they can support the widest range of LTE bands. And Apple likes to streamline their, their manufacturing. So they only have a couple of models of the iPhone. And they can put this one modem in and it'll basically work with any network in the world compared to something like Samsung where it's like they might have 12 or 15 different variants of the same phone with different modems that are set for different geographical regions with different LTE bands, different, you know, so it's it's needlessly complex. And Apple just prefers a simpler approach of like we're just going to have one and, you know, make maybe, you know, they have maybe two or three models for different geographical regions, but it's a lot simpler than 12. Yeah. And you it's know, a lot easier to hit scale with, with something that is a little bit more universal. Yeah, exactly. So I think they've done a really good job in just you know being able to really keep that spot and staying ahead of the competition. Although there is now talk of Intel might get into the iPhone seven, that which you know that rumor has been around for years. So who knows what happens this year or not? But they they might slowly be starting to lose their grip on it. But they've had a pretty good run with you know really maintaining that relationship. And I mean, it, I mean Apple and Samsung. Were, I think a couple of years ago, or half of Qualcomm's revenue. So I mean, it's a big, it's a big relationship. Yeah. And uh, what about ARM Holdings? So they're a semiconductor company uh, providing processors for the iPhone and basically the chip that carries out operations set by the computer program. Right. So the the actual Apple's processors are, I think, are really interesting because you have ARM, which is a British company, and they design the chip architecture and they license, and then they also design how to like make the chips. And then they license this out to the other companies to actually go and implement to use. But they have a couple of different types of licenses. They have these kind of stock licenses for very specific processors. But what kind of what they also have is is an instruction set license. So you basically get access to the underlying architecture. So you can actually really develop on top of what they've done and innovate and really cater a chip's performance to your needs in terms of you know power, consumption, power efficiency, like just actual computing power. And that's what the high-level people, high-level companies do, like Qualcomm, Apple, Samsung. They all have instruction set licenses that allow them to really differentiate their chips. And you know, because before that, Apple was using pretty standard off-the-shelf parts, you know, that were made by like other companies. But with the A4 starting in 2010, they put their own branding on it, and like they're really differentiating. And then now all of a sudden they have like 64-bit processors, which are like desktop class. And you know, they've done so much on their chips in the past five years that it's just insane. Like they've caught everyone off guard with how advanced they're. And they, they barely even talk about it too. I mean, in classic kind of Apple way, they, they don't talk too much about the tech specs of it. They just say it's so much faster <laughs> because you don't really need to know much. You don't need to know the clock speed or eyes start to glaze over a little bit. Yeah, right? exactly. Which a lot of people do. And, and it's a, it's a big branding strength that they can just be like, Hey, it's, it's just a ton faster. And it's desktop class. I mean, it's comparable to like low-end desktops, but we're talking about a phone processor, so it's still pretty impressive in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But the, from a supply chain perspective, it's also pretty interesting because you have this British company that licenses it out to Apple, who's in California, and then Apple goes and they do all their design work on top of that. And then they go and they have contract manufacturing on the chip side. So Samsung makes the chips for them. They recently added Taiwan Semiconductor as a chip maker. So and, and those are based in Korea, and there's they're in um, obviously Taiwan Semiconductor is in Taiwan. Uh, Samsung makes some of the chips in Austin, Texas. So you have you know all, like just for this one chip, which is obviously a very important component, it comes from all over the world, like in terms of it, its own value chain. And then and they also license the GPU technology from another British company, Imagination. So I mean you have 
you, you just have this wide collection of companies in geographical areas where they have to come together just for this one processor to come together, which is an incredibly important part of the device. Yeah, the sheer number of moving parts that go into Apple's supply chain is kind of baffling. Um, if you want more of a taste of this, listeners, if you Google um, Apple Supplier List 2015, the company makes available their top 200 suppliers. And so some of them are within the same company but different addresses. But they estimate that their top 200 suppliers comprise about 97% of uh, the procurement expenditures for materials, manufacturing, and assembly of products. So, uh, you know, that is across all their product lines, but that gives you a pretty good sense of all of the different suppliers that wind up going into these um, Asian contract manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evan, anything else to throw in before I let you go? No, I think that uh, I think we covered pretty most of it. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, man. All right. Thanks. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can just tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com backslash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear here. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>